0: to you first Kings chapter 20 this evening if you're with us tonight and our journey through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation and you don't have a Bible there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles and if you just get their attention they'll get one into your hands and then you can follow along with us not only listening but follow along with your eyes to all that's being shared this evening. Wanna just make mention while we're getting there, uh Labor Day baptism and picnic is tomorrow, so if all that's required in order to be water baptized is to be born again. And uh and so if that's you've asked the Lord into your heart and you've put your faith in Jesus for salvation, you do need to be water baptized. That's a commandment of the Lord. There's reasons for it. We'll talk about that immediately before. We do the baptizing and, and all and explain things. But uh, if you've never been water baptized and you're a Christian need to do that, Tomorrow's a great opportunity uh, to do that while we still have warm weather. It looks like a beautiful day uh, tomorrow. So take advantage of the opportunity and then just everybody coming out. We've got hot dogs and potato salad afterwards and we'll pray over those hot dogs and uh, and no deadly poison will be allowed to do you any harm. And we're going to claim the promises of Mark chapter 16. And so um, just come on out. Great time of fellowship and games and all kinds of stuff that will be happening afterwards. So uh, even if you've been water baptized, come on out. We'll have a great time. Chapter 20, First Kings. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria and Syria in the same region of where Syria is today, boarding there with Israel, he gathered all of his forces together and his forces were considerable. Thirty two kings were aligned with him in this uh, attack against Israel and uh, with horses and chariots. And so to go into battle with horses and chariots and in the ancient world, that was like having tanks and and uh, the, the cutting edge weaponry. And he went up and he besieged Samaria, which is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, and he made War against it. And so here he is. He is uh, initiating an attack upon Israel. He has somehow uh, uh, inclined the hearts of 32 kings or kind of tribal leaders that are in the area to join him in this attack. And he then sent messengers into the city of uh, into the city to Ahab, king of Israel. And they said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. I don't like this guy's attitude, but he's he's full of himself at the moment. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. He wanted to choose. He didn't want all of them. He just wanted the loveliest of them. Might have heard about Jezebel or something and said, "You can keep her <laughs> but just to send this thing there 's no negotiation, there 's no bartering any or anything i 've got this gigantic force here to wipe you out. Everything you own is mine, your wives are mine, your children are mine, and that 's the demand that that he is is making of Ahab and for Ahab, the kind of surrender related to this would have would have uh, uh, been to uh, communicate that he was basically surrendering his, his the nation and himself to to Ben-Hadad. And so it was a real um, what he's doing here is he's not just uh, trying to uh, beat Ahab. He wants to humiliate him. He wants to emasculate him And so it was a real challenge of Ahab's uh, manhood and the way that all of this is done. And so the king answered, Ahab said, and he said, My lord, O king, just as you say, uh, I and all that I have are yours. Agreed. Everything I've got, all the silver, all the gold, my wives, my children, they're yours. I agree. He's he's overwhelmed with the size of the military that's come out against him. Now, probably what he is thinking is that Ben-Hadad is not going to demand that all of that be given to him. That Ben-Hadad would uh, be content, it would be sufficient for him that Ahab said all of these things belong to you, basically in, in a surrender, but that he wouldn't take it up literally and take his wives and take his children. But at any rate, he agrees to the terms. And the messengers, they came back, uh, apparently they take the message back to uh, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad thinks, what, he agreed to these terms? These are crazy terms, <laughs> He agreed to these terms without a war? I must have asked too little of him. So he thought, man, this was no negotiation. I can push this guy further. So he sent messengers back to Ahab, and they said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, your children, but I will send. Here's the additional demand. I will send my servants to you tomorrow, same time uh, as today, and they shall search your house, the houses also of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and they'll take it. We're going to plunder you, your palace, all of your officers, all of your cabinet members, all of your rich people. We want to not only loot you, but we want to loot everybody else. And so they they he elevates uh, the, the stakes here and wants to take everything of value from the land. Well. The king of Israel, he called all the elders of the land together because they're affected by this demand of Ben-Hadad. And he said, gives him a little history lesson. This is what's been going on privately between me and Ben-Hadad. Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. I'm not looking for trouble. He's looking for trouble. There's no pacifying his, his hunger for trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And then all of the elders and all of the people, they said to him, do not listen or consent. And so they they uh, tell Ahab, listen, don't agree to this. Whatever you've agreed to thus far, don't agree and, and comply with this, this final uh, demand. We're not going to have any part of it. What you agreed to, that's your line. We're not willing to allow them to do that and concerning our homes, our wives, our families, our wealth. And therefore, Ahab said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, I mean, he's really groveling here, all that you sent for to your servant the first time, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and they brought back word to Ben-Hadad. And then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, he's really steamed over this, and he said, the gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful of each of the people who follow me. In other words, I'm going to attack you with this great military force that we have and we're going to loot everything. We're going to take everything you own from the king all the way down to the pauper. And in fact, we're going to hit you with an army that's so large that we'll be lucky if the soldiers each get a handful of dirt in Samaria to take away from the whooping that we're going to put on you tomorrow. It's a little uh, Muhammad Ali talk there on sports fans. And so we're going to turn you into a, a pile of dust. And so the king of Israel answered and said to Ben-Hadad, tell him, tell the king, let not one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Well, somebody got a backbone here in the course of things. Basically, he's saying, listen, Ben-Hadad, don't you be talking trash before the battle. You can talk trash afterwards. But you've got to earn the right to talk trash and you're talking trash to me. And so we would say it's much more delicate. Don't count your chickens before they've hatched. And so this is a pretty strong answer. I like it in them, you know. So he's been pushed, you know, too far now. And so he ships this back. Now how he's going to back that up, uh, God's going to pull his bacon out of the fire. And it happened when I'm full of all kinds of little expressions here tonight. I don't know. And it happened when Ben Hadad heard this message as the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. So he is infuriated by. What's been said to him, he orders their attack. And I mean, he is so confident that he's going to be able to defeat Israel, that they'll be able to defeat him even while drunk or inebriated. And suddenly a prophet uh, approached King Ahab or Ahab, king of Israel. Remember, God had said to Elijah, no, there's seven thousand just like you that haven't uh, bowed their knee to Baal. And uh, this is one of them. So a prophet approached King Ahab. He's in a mess here. And I've I've pushed back now. And what am I going to do? This is a gigantic army and the whole deal. God's so gracious. I mean, here's a king just wicked as can be. And God's still fishing for his soul. Still trying to break through in this guy's life. Pull him out of another pickle. And uh, so he'll turn to him and walk with him as his God. And so the prophet approached King Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord. I'll tell you, that's what you want at a moment like that, don't you? When you're in that kind of a position, I mean, you want to hear a thus saith the Lord. Wonderful to have this Bible on our lap, isn't it? To be able to turn any time we want for a, thus saith the Lord. But that's what we want to do, is in a time like that, we need to hear the voice of God. And here's the voice of the Lord, the prophet said. Have you seen... All this great multitude, Uh huh. behold, I will deliver it into your hand today at, and you, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. Again, unbelievable grace. <clears throat> he just just could have taken Ahab out and, and legitimately all the way through his reign. And yet again, he's. He's working. He's trying to get through to him. I think it's wonderful to realize concerning friends or ex-friends or family members or acquaintances or bosses or neighbors, no matter how wicked people can be, that as long as they have breath, God is always trying to work to get that breakthrough in in their life, to bring them to come to realize that he is the true and the living God, and that he ought to be surrendered to it. um, helps my heart to realize that he's working that way. And, and so he is in, in Ahab's life. I think that when the, one day when there is the judgment, the white throne judgment of the wicked and the white throne judgment of those that have rejected Christ all of their life, which is the, the single greatest sin that anyone can commit, the single greatest affront that anyone can commit to heaven and to God, a person could be the most moral person in their neighborhood, in their entire city. And yet if they do that to God, it's just wickedness to do that. In the light of our need, in the light of His grace, and His love, and the light of the price that He paid to provide us with a Savior. It just doesn't make sense for the creation to treat the Creator that way. But here is, is God, and and on that day... I think the Lord just dispenses grace and grace and he tries to reach and he tries to reach and sometimes it's just private with the person so that one day when if and when he is forced to pour out his judgment, eternal judgment on that on that person, that no one, if they want to roll the DVD related to the efforts that God had made to reach that person could ever complain that God hadn't worked mightily to break through. And so Ahab is going to be responsible for this light, this revelation that God is doing. I'm going to deliver this entire army into your hand, Ahab. And here's the purpose for it. That you, if Mount Carmel wasn't enough, okay, that you may know that I am the Lord and not this stupid Baal thing you're doing around here. And so Ahab said, by whom? He's excited. All right, you're going to give me the victory. Who's going to lead out in this this battle. And he said, Thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces, they'll lead out first. And then Ahab said, Who'll set the battle in order? And the prophet said, You will. So I mean he's he's hungry for this instruction, and he's these are all the questions that are at the forefront of his mind. Alright, if I could feel the battle, who would do this, who would do that? And God's answering those questions for him. And then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were two hundred and thirty two. Oh great. Almost as many as the kings that are united with ben Hadad. One one plus God is a majority. God's a majority. So he mustered the young leaders of the provinces. And there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel into battle. 7,000. And so they went out at noon. God had said, I'm going to deliver them into your hands and so Ahab, I'm going to deliver them into your hands today. So as soon as he gets these forces, the, whatever the number is he can get together on that day, he launches this, uh, uh, this attack uh, uh, against them, and of course. Um, so he doesn't wait for Ahab to attack him. It's a surprise attack that he makes. Makes it at noon. You really don't start battles in the Middle East in that heat at noon. So it's really going to catch Ben-Hadad by surprise. But it's a, it's a good mark of... Of of Ahab uh, in his obedience to God here. And meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. It was like to be a private in that army. Oh, great. Got a bunch of drunks going to lead us out into battle. But that's how confident they were. The young leaders of the provinces went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. And they told him, coming back, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. There's an an attack, a, a, a patrol that's coming out against us. And so he said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. You have the old saying, you know, well, it's just the liquor talking. That's kind of what's happening. It's just this drunken boasting. And you know what liquor makes a person say, ultimately, makes them talk a lot. But what they end up saying in the talking a lot is this punch me. That's why so many fights occur when you get to you just start talking trash dumb like this. And then somebody who's sober is going to clean your clock. I had a guy named Hector that I worked with at the phone company. I mentioned him a couple of times, won't mention his last name. But he used to go out and he'd do all this stuff on the weekends and he'd get in these fights and he'd come back and he'd be all busted up and there's the same old story, you should see the other guy. And I say, Hector, what are you what are you doing here? He says, I love to fight. He says, it's how you you know it's how you know you're alive. And I'm thinking to myself, how about a hot fudge Sunday? Could that, would that work just as well, you know, and a note from my parents? I don't know then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. And each one is these young leaders of the provinces in Israel as they reached the the man, the Syrian that was being led by Ben-Hadad. They killed that man. And so the Syrians then fled. I mean, this kind of a supernatural fear then spreads. It's irrational. The number of the men they have and all, they, they shouldn't. But. God is on the side of the children of Israel. And so the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. So he races out of there. And the king of Israel went out and he attacked the horses and chariots. And he killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And then the prophet, following the battle, came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself. Take note and see what you should do. For this in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you once again. Now, how valuable is that intelligence? All right. You beat them in this battle, but these people are not going to give up. So in the spring of next year and most of the wars were begun in the spring because now you had enough uh, food to feed the armies. There was enough Uh, uh, grass and this kind of thing to feed the animals and all the ground was beginning to become firm. And so he's telling him basically don't think this is the end of it. You need to stay on guard and you need to replenish your forces and you need to prepare to be attacked uh, once again. And so tremendous intelligence that the Lord gives him here and his need to further strengthen himself and his army for what it is that Ben Hadad is going to put together against them the following year. Now, while Ahab is getting this kind of counsel from God, uh, Ben Hadad is also getting counsel, uh, very much inferior counsel. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. That's why they got us. We fought them in the hills. And their gods got the big muscles on the hills. We picked the wrong terrain. And in the ancient world, they did believe in territorial uh, gods. That uh, certain gods were stronger in different terrain. I guess, to me, the, the best parallel of it is uh, an FM radio station. If you've ever traveled across state or tra- traveled across the United States, you know before satellite and iPods and all this kind of stuff. We can control what you're listening to a little more, but you'd leave one area and then the FM station fades out. And uh, now you've got to begin to turn uh, on the dial to find out what are the deities of the new metropolis that you're approaching. And and so they felt that the gods that they served had that kind of uh, they were weren't. Uh, They only had so much power and so much reach. They were strong in certain areas. If they were strong in the hills as a forte, they'd be weak in the valleys or vice versa. But no God was all powerful in on all terrain all over the world. And that's why when God comes in a revelation, we take for granted. We believe we know that our God is all powerful. He is equally powerful anywhere in the world. Anywhere we find ourselves, it's not like we've, we can't pick him up somewhere. We've got this spot, whatever the phone spot is. And that he is not only all powerful, but that he's omnipresent. He's perfectly, fully present anywhere in the world. And we take that for granted. And I I'm not as a criticism saying anything bad about that. We should. But in the ancient world, their concept of a God that was everywhere, all at the same time, equally powerful. I mean, they couldn't conceive of a God like that. And that's a God that we're used to. It's the God of the Bible, because he's the only true and a living God. And so they said, all right, we picked a wrong deal. We fought, we, fought that, we fought with our army and our gods in a weak area for our gods. So we've got to turn this whole thing around And in order to defeat them, and therefore, that's a reason word, this is the reason that they were stronger than us, had nothing to do with their gods or, you know, their Jehovah or better fighting forces or any of this. But if we fight against them in the plains, you've got to get them on flat ground. That's that's where we're strong. Surely we'll be stronger than they. And so this is the counsel that he gets. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings. Forget this whole king thing. Uh, Let's put real military men in these positions, each from his position, and put captains in their places. You shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice, and he did so. So he said, get rid of these kings, get us some real military guys, and then let's restore this this army fully that's been so badly uh, slaughtered. And so it was in the spring of the year that ben hadad mustered the Syrians, and he went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And, and that's flat ground, just like his advisors had said. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the, now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little goat, flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. I mean, that's quite some imagery, isn't it? I'm a part of the little flock of goat battalion. <laughs> Doesn't make a very good insignia on the patch, does it? All around they're surrounded by the Syrians. And then a man of God came. Whew. I want to hear from God at a time like that. God's so gracious. And he spoke to the king of Israel. And he said... Thus says the Lord, Ooh, those are wonderful words, because the Syrians have said the Lord, speaking of himself, is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys because my reputation is at stake. Therefore, I will deliver all this multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to give this victory to Ahab and the children of Israel, We're going to give it to him in order to communicate to Ahab and certainly the Syrians and everyone that he is the God of both the hills and the valleys. He's the omnipotent, omniscient, you know, omnipresent God that he is. So his reputation is at stake. And so this is the instruction that he has given. The reason that he gives, uh, he's going to give this victory is so that the world can know who he is, what he is fully. And so they encamped opposite each other for seven days. And so it was on the seventh day the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. I mean, it's in your mind, hand-to-hand combat. Incredible. One hundred thousand. I mean, what would you pull up on Fox or CNN? Those kind of numbers in one day. But the rest fled to Afek into the city. And as they're in there hiding behind some kind of a wall, a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left so they think they're hiding behind and then the wall collapses on them. We don't know uh, whether it's a miracle of God or an earthquake did this caused to come to pass. Or there's kind of, some kind of battering ram, probably not related to the children of, of Israel in terms of what they took into battle. But 27,000 killed by the falling wall. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber there. And then his servants said to him, look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. And the children, the children of Israel and the kings of the children of Israel did have a reputation in the ancient world for being more merciful to their captives than the surrounding nations. I mean, the Assyrian Empire is going to follow in history, but they would just go into a city and just kill everybody. I'm not talking, if you're Assyrian today, I'm not talking about listen i'm scottish and irish i know my heritage it's not that pretty i'm still dealing with a little bit of bitterness concerning the english as well but any but this is another story for another bible study but so none of the gene pools really really messy from adam and eve no matter what But they would go in, take a city, behead everyone, pile all of the heads in a gigantic pile at the gate of the city, skin people alive, coat the walls of the city with human skin. And then every in order to put fear in the minds of all of the of the other cities concerning this is what we'll do to you if you make us conquer you by battle. And so to to produce this kind of surrender. And so this, there was this kind of brutality that was normal. There's no Geneva Convention or anything like that. And and so the children of Israel, uh, because of the law and because of the God of Israel, they had rightfully they had this reputation. And so they said, listen, if you were taken captive by so and so and so and so, you know, you're lunch meat. But because of this These kings of Israel, we've got a chance here that some mercy will be shown. So let's do this. Let's put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads, indicating that they were going to in submission, coming as servants in a low place before King Ahab. And let's go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they wore sackcloth around their waist. They put ropes around their heads. And they came to the king of Israel and said, Behold, Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. Now, the the tables are all turned. This is all, give me your gold, give me your silver, give me your loveliest wives and children. And time has a way of marching on. And now he's saying, Listen, if you let me live, I'll become your vassal. You can have anything that I have. And that's the message that was taken By the servants of Ben Hadad to Ahab. And Ahab's response is, Is he still alive? He is my brother. And uh, this was more than they could have dreamed for. Ben Hadad was not his brother. Ben Hadad, as we're going to see in a few verses, was set aside by God for destruction. And because Ahab did not destroy Ben-Hadad for long years, Ben-Hadad and Syria were going to bring terrible damage and destruction to the children of Israel. God wanted the guy taken care of as a part of this battle. So he says, is he my brother? Probably behind this whole scene is at this moment in the history of the world, Assyria is ascending as a world ruling empire. And so Ahab probably looks at the situation and says, all right, I need all of the allies that I can get, especially nations that are bordered up against me. So why don't we become brothers in some kind of an alliance, a mutual defense pact of some kind against the growth and the expansion of the Assyrian Empire? And so but Clearly, this this breathed hope into the situation that Ben-Hadad might live. And now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And when they they quickly grasped at his word and they said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, yes, brother, brother, yes, brother. And so Ahab said, Go bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him. And then Ahab had him come up into his chariot, which was a position of favor and kind of a gesture of uh, friendship. And so Ben-Hadad, he's he's got momentum is on his side. And so he's going to follow up the favor by saying to Ahab, The cities which my father took from your father, I will restore And you you may set up marketplaces for Israeli goods. It'll be good for your economy. It'll be good politically uh, that you've let me, you know, uh, live. You'll set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. Agreed. And so he made a treaty with him, and he sent Ben-Hadad away. This was not Ahab's prerogative to do. God had delivered this army to destruction to bring peace to his people for a period of time. And he had taken Ben-Hadad and wanted him to be destroyed in the battle. And here is King Ahab rather than and he had been warned beforehand that this battle, everything that was going on here, was what was at stake was the reputation and the glory of God. And he throws all of that away to do something that's politically expedient here. And is just going to make a little bit more money and then politically make it appear as if they're a little bit more secure. Because this man has no concern about the reputation of God. Now, a certain man, and God's got something to say about this, and he's going to rebuke him. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor and the sons of the prophets were graduates of uh, what was known in the Old Testament as the schools of the prophets. So you would have these men who had prophetic office in the Old Testament And there were schools that were set up where their their sons and then other men would also go. They would learn the Torah. They would learn the law of Moses so that they could then speak for God in the culture. And so he's he's a part of one of these schools and a legitimate prophet. And so he said to his neighbor, probably uh, another one of these members of of the uh, schools of the prophets, and he said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, so he commands him, As a command from God, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. So he said, what I want you to do is I want you to strike me and I want you to make me bleed. And because you need to make me look like I'm coming out of this battle that I've just survived this battle that Israel has been in. But the man refused, even with the the command of the Lord. And so the first prophet said to the second, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. And that's the real issue here. Surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man and said to him, strike me, please. And so the man struck him. Inflicting a wound, he obeyed this, the command of the Lord to do that, gave him a wound so that he could look like he came out of the battle. And the prophet departed and he waited for the king by the road and he disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So he really looks like he's come out of that battle and wounded and been in the midst of all of it. So the king passed by and the prophet cried out to the king and said, your servant went up into the midst of the battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver, 75 pounds of silver. So he'd been entrusted by, he says, this man was entrusted to me for safekeeping. But while your servant was busy here and there in the midst of the battle, everything going on, I turn around, the, the, the prisoner is gone. And then the king of Israel said to him, so you shall, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decide, uh, decided it. In other words, he says, you've been guilty of the negligence to duty. And so whatever comes on your head because of your failure to keep, the person that was delivered to you to justice, then you're going to bear the consequences of it. And, of course, this whole thing is a setup, basically, to get uh, Ahab to pronounce guilt upon himself because that's precisely what he had done with Ben-Hadad. So he looks at this guy and, he's, and he you know, lays the law down onto him for a lesser thing than what he had done in releasing Ben-Hadad. And while your servant was, and so you've decided in verse 41. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. The king recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to the king, "Thus says the Lord: Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. You are guilty of a greater failure." than what you just judged out of your mouth. And so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased, and he came to Samaria. So um, it should have been a a day of great victory if he had done everything that God had called him to, but now there's this afterglow of, of not really an afterglow, an after whatever, a dismal thing, where he could have really gone home, celebrate the great victory, all of this, and then now, because he didn't do what God had called him to, he goes home and he sulks. And this is something uh, that characterized Ahab's uh, life. And so this decision, again, that he makes here to spare Ahab, Ahab will live to fight another day. He has trusted the wrong man. God knew what he was talking about. Ahab did not know what he was doing and he should have uh, judged the man as God intended it, chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things, some number of years later. There's a short period of of uh, peace between uh, Syria and, uh, and the northern kingdom of Israel following that battle. But sometime after these things, uh, there, Naboth, the Jezreelite, The guy's name is Naboth, and he was named a Jezreelite because he had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel. So he's from Jezreel. That's the name that they gave him. He's got a vineyard there, and his vineyard is located right next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So the city of Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Ahab and Jezebel had a palace there, but they had a second palace in Jezebel. And this guy's uh, land property uh, abutted uh, up against that, uh, that property. And so Ahab spoke to Naboth and said, give me your vineyard and uh, that I may have it for this purpose because I want to uh, have a vegetable garden. I want to grow some vegetables and I want your land because it's near. It's right next to my house. And for it, I'll give you a vineyard that's even better than this one. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. So he offers this thing. Give this thing to me. I'll I'll pay you whatever you want. And and more than than all of it uh, is is worth. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. This is known as a refusal on the part of Naboth. Naboth says, no, you're not going to get that land. I'm not going to sell it to you under any circumstances. And I want you to notice related to his refusal that Naboth's refusal was not about a vineyard. It wasn't about a piece of land supremely, but it was about a principle. You notice he didn't say, I'm not going to sell you the land. He refers to the land as the inheritance of my father's this is not about land this is about my family and the inheritance of my father's notice also that he refused by declaring the Lord forbid in some way. He views Ahab's proposal as a violation of God's law and the proposal was a violation of his law because the law of Moses taught that when the children of Israel came into the promised land, Canaan, God said the land is mine. It all belongs to me. You are all renting here, but I'm going to share it with you. And when the land was divided among the tribes and the families of Israel under Moses and and more completely under Joshua, the land, when it was given to those tribes and it was given to those families, it was not to pass out of the control or the ownership of a family except under extraordinary circumstances. And even if a family was forced to sell their land because of economic hardship, it was only to be for a time. Because in the year of Jubilee, all land would refer back, would go back to its former owners, and the family would have it back once again as a part of the family as it would revert back there. And the idea behind all of this was to keep. The land, the whole land of Israel being gobbled up by the wealthy in kind of the ebb and flow of a national life where you can have something happen and suddenly everybody's uh, dot com billionaires and they can buy the whole state, you know, the whole country of Israel and everybody sells the whole thing in the hands of the nation or in the hands of a few people. And God wanted in the hands of everybody, he wanted everybody to have a stake in the land, to have a place of of security and a a place to hang their hat in in the land. And that was the reason behind uh, the law, as is recorded in uh, Leviticus chapter 25. And Apparently, Ahab wanted this to be a permanent transaction. But Naboth is a God-fearing Israelite, and obedience to the Mosaic law was most important to him And he refused to sell his inheritance to even a king. You can offer me the whole land of Israel, and I don't care. God said, this land was given to my family. And my fathers before me have been faithful not to sell it and to keep it in the family name. All of my descendants who are going to come after me are trusting that I will do what my fathers have done. I am not selling this land, not for any price at all. And so he lives up to the responsibility that he has here. And and to his credit, a man of great conviction and uh, and a man of, of great, great principle. So God bless him. And there's not a lot of good news through some of these chapters. But here's Naboth. I mean, his name is really gold. He's going to pay a price for this. But. His name has been read for thousands and thousands of years in this book. And his name is gold for the stand which he's taken. And so Ahab, when he hears the news, he went to his house sullen and displeased. So he's a little powder. Because the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him made him sad. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. So he went home and he lay down on his bed. And he turned away his face. And he would eat no food. Now, Jezebel's going to be really upset with him in a moment for all the wrong reasons. But this would upset me. Dad, what are you doing, you big baby? Well, you can't say that if you're the son. But I mean, he's just—this is how he responds to the whole thing. I'm not going to eat, and I'm going to just—I'm going to starve myself to death because I didn't get that. But isn't it interesting too? You think about covetousness. The guy's got anything he wants. He's got more land than he knows what to do. More buildings than he knows what to do with. And yet he wants this guy's vineyard. The heart is never satisfied on that. And so Jezebel's wife comes in and said to him. Uh, uh, Yeah, Jezebel, his wife, came into him, verse five, said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? I mean, this is strange behavior. And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and I said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, he doesn't represent that conversation very well. Because the way that he presents it, it makes it look as as if Naboth was being unnecessarily and deliberately disrespectful toward Ahab. He doesn't mention that he said no on the basis of principle and on the basis of the law of Moses. Might have changed some things. He's wrapped up in what happens after uh, when Jezebel takes control of this. And then Jezebel, his wife, said to him. You now exercise authority over Israel. Come on, buckaroo. You're the king. Remember that? You're the king of the land. And what are you doing? You take a little no like this. You can, and from her, where she comes from, from a Phoenician and a Canaanite background, which is where she comes from, she's thinking, what's going on? Where I come from, kings know they're kings. Whatever they want, they take. What are you doing here? You want that land? Go take that land. That's her understanding of how you deal with it. Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. I'll go get the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Let me show you how it's done. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote the letters saying this. Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. And here the idea is uh, call a fast. And give uh, plant the seed of thought within the minds of the people that there is a curse upon Jezreel because of some hidden sin and God's about to curse the, the city, some hidden sin that only he knows about. So proclaim a fast, seat Naboth with a high honor among the people. Seat two men scoundrels before him uh, to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him that he may die. Now, she knows a little bit about the Bible, evidently. Because according to the law of Moses, blasphemy of God was a capital crime. She also knows that according to the law of Moses, every fact needed to be established by two eyewitnesses. And so she's basically saying, hire two liars who will tell the same story in order to uh, get this man convicted of something that he never did in order that we might uh, execute him. Not for the real reason that we're executing him, but to give the appearance that we're executing him for the breaking of the law of Moses. And so the men of his city, the elders, the nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel said to them, as it was written in the letters which he had sent to them. Never help a Jezebel do something like this. You look at the most corrupt and darkest periods in human history. And these men and women who are monsters on an international and national level only get away with what they do because people like this won't stand up in mass against them. And that goes that goes all the way down into a city and into a neighborhood. They proclaimed a fast and they seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men scoundrels, they came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. And they took him outside the city, and they stoned him with stones so that he died. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And so news is brought to her of what it is that has uh, happened uh, here. Now, we know in the killing of Naboth here in Second Kings chapter 9, verse 26, we'll also find out that they executed all of his sons as well. So that the land, they, they, left, they left Naboth with no heirs. So that then when they all died, uh, then what are we going to do with the land? And so then it was perfectly natural for the land then to kind of get yielded to the king and for Ahab to take possession of it. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, arise. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and he went to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so he's very excited about this. Now, to be sure, he had to find out he's the king. I mean, he's got to ask a question or two, how in the world, what what produced this change uh, of events here that allows this to become my property? And so God is going to hold him responsible for this act occurring under his reign. And uh, surely he knew something about it. But, you know, as, as uh, he, he looks at it. Um, you, you know, it's it, it, well, you know, all's well that ends well. And I, I've got what I wanted and we'll just ignore how messy things got along the way. And then the word of the Lord. The problem is the Lord watched the whole thing. And he came to Elisha, the Tishbite, saying, arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel. And we call him the king of Israel. It's important because he's saying you're the king. Jezebel comes to you, says you're the king, and you can just flush your muscles and do all of this stuff. I'm coming to you to tell you that you're the king and you're responsible for what's just happened under your watch. So you can just imagine this Elijah coming face to face with Ahab in that vineyard. Arise, go down to meet King Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in his vineyard. That's not what it says. Here's how God looks at it. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. God doesn't recognize what just happened where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth following his stoning. So apparently they just stoned him. He bled out the dogs to no burial here. They just let the dogs lick his blood there. The dogs will lick your blood, even yours. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah answered, I have found you because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so here's Ahab, Ahab has a beef with the fact that That every time Elijah comes, he's got a message of condemnation. And he thinks there's something wrong with Elijah rather than something wrong with him. There are people like that in life. They can't can't even see why they're always under God's judgment or why they always can't hold on to a godly friend. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. And I will take away your posterity. And I will cut off Ahab from Ahab, every male in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin because of what you've done. I'm going to cut your lineage off in Jewish history. You're through. Your name is through. That's one of the worst things that could happen to a Jew in that day. I'm, I'm not only cutting you off in, in, in your descendants for any length of time following me as kings. Ultimately, I'm going to cut your bloodline off altogether. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat Whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. So Jezebel, Elijah prophesies and says she's going to die and she's going to die in such a way that she doesn't get buried. The dogs just eat her. Now, in that culture, in those days, dogs were scavengers. They ate garbage. They just ate trash that was left out in the alleys and in the streets and the dumps and all. And so basically, Elisha's saying... She she, she, she is going to be eaten like the trash that she is morally, spiritually, the kind of person that she is. These are extraordinarily wicked and evil people. The fascinating thing is, as we go through the historical account, in fact, as we get into it next week, we'll see that just as God had prophesied concerning Ahab's death and his blood being licked up by the dogs, that'll happen. The death of Jezebel will occur later when Jehu becomes the king and she's thrown from a window and falls to the ground and dies. Jehu walks in and, and goes into a, uh, a restaurant there and eats. And while he's in there eating, the dogs on the street uh, eat her body until there's just a part of her scalp left and some of her palms or something like that. Everything that God prophesied would occur uh, did occur. And I'll tell you, you can read the whole volume of the book that way. I'm reading the book of Revelation right now as a part of my morning devotional. And I just read that and, and I mean I've just I've read it so many times, but I'm just absorbing it phrase by phrase and to realize this is the future of the world. This is as sure as the death of Ahab and Jezebel. God's word, even his word of judgment, is true. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up, bad influence, And he behaved very abominably and following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. God had cast them out because he said what they're doing is so sickening and it's so sinful and it's so terrible that human beings shouldn't be doing these things. I'm going to drive them out of the land, bring you into the land. And here is Ahab out uh, Amoriting the Amorites. And so it was when Ahab heard those words. Then he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his body and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and he went about mourning. This is his response to this message of judgment. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Elijah, the Tishbite saying, see how Abab has humbled himself, not how he has repented. This doesn't fool God. See how he has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In terms of the end of his bloodline, in the days of his sons, I will bring calamity on his house. And here is God again. He recognizes this isn't true repentance that's occurred here. It's it's a, some level of humility. But again, God is trying, he's trying, he's trying, he's trying to nurture any step toward God in this wicked man's life in order to bring him to repentance and change his eternal destiny. Isn't it fascinating to come to know the Lord one day? and To think, wow, God was after me that night that I gave my life to the Lord. You come to know the Lord and you look back and you see how long he's been working, how much grace and grace and grace and grace and the next chance. And then a little bit of a revelation here where we begin to believe that he exists and then the favor where he spares us out of this situation and this and this and this and and then to discover he's been working so long in our lives. And when we come to Christ, then it has a happy ending, but not everyone allows it to have a happy ending. Maybe there may be somebody who sits here tonight, and your name is mud, rightfully mud, in your family, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, in your wherever. You say, who will give me a second chance? Is there a God that's got the kind of grace for a person like me? And there is a God for that kind of person, the God of the Bible, still reaching out to Ahab, the worst king that Israel ever had up to this point in time. There's nobody beyond his grace and his forgiveness, but it requires more than humbling myself. It requires repenting of my sin and putting my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that sin and then beginning a personal relationship with God. But my point is there's hope for you. God loves you. God's got grace for you. God's been reaching out a long time to you. And tonight's your night to be saved. And there'll be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. They'd love to pray with you. To begin that relationship with God tonight. And everything changes in your life as a result. It's all there for the asking and for the receiving. We'll stop there tonight. And I'd like the worship team to come forward. And lead us in a couple of worship songs.